0: Welcome to the Sheila Shilakama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Corinne Anger. Corinne is an earth scientist who graduated with a PhD in management, but recently moved to the social studies based on her interest on uh, the human aspect of uh, our world. She worked in the mining industry in the North Territory, of Australia, managing mine rehabilitation and research. She then worked for the Queensland government managing mining legacies. She then became self-employed as a consultant on mine closure and rehabilitation. She is a Churchill Fellow who conducted research in in 2009 on leading practice on Abundant Mine Rehabilitation and Post-Mining Land Use in Europe and in Canada. Corinne, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. That's lovely. I mean, you, you are interesting in that you started off as an earth scientist, but then realized that uh, science does not exist in a vacuum and took an interest in, in the human uh, aspect of uh, science so let's start by just asking the question when we think about the circular economy how can the circular economy address the supply deficit in critical minerals for clean energy
1: so um
0: my interest in this is
1: centered on um, mining legacies and how we close mines Because on the one hand, the linear economy allows uh, mining companies to um, accumulate waste, whereas now we're realising that there's value in that waste, that there are residual raw materials that are important for the green energy transition. So even though I've worked in different aspects of mine rehabilitation and closure over the years, um, everything from managing water to solid waste, tailings, waste rock, and so on. Um, it's also about the vegetation and passive treatment and active treatment of water and so on. My interest at the moment is on what we're going to do with all of these mining legacies, mainly the negative ones, because obviously, if a mine leaves a positive legacy, there's nothing that no intervention required. But for those that are polluting, um, impacting communities, perhaps left a community without its employment base then there's a need to sort of reinvigorate and bring life back to those mines to clean them up but also to find value in them so that's where my interest is at the moment.
0: So it's not self-evident what we mean by uh, mining legacies and residual value can you take first the notion of mining legacies and explain what you mean by mining legacies? So it's really what's left behind by mining and
1: uh, it is both the positive and the negative. Uh, if we look at that term, that th- that a mine contributes to the local economy, it provides jobs, um, an economic base, it um, brings wealth to states uh, through royalties and rents and so on. And, and trade to nations. So if you look at what's left behind, then sometimes it's uh, regions that are richer for having had a mine. But at the same time, uh, particularly old mines, but not always, uh, there are negative legacies. Because landscapes have been disturbed, large open-cut pits or underground workings interact with water systems, groundwater, surface water. Um, They disturb vegetation. They disturb land uses and livelihoods often a mine itself requires exclusion of people so that the mining can proceed safely so people are are relocated or limited in what they can do on the land so when a mine finishes it should be uh, rehabilitated um, in a way that restores some beneficial use to the land whether it's as simple as uh, vegetation pasture for cattle grazing for example or it could be um, biodiversity to reinstate native ecosystems that are important in an area or it could be some other use of the land that is um, now something that's important to the local community um, hiking trails and um, recreational areas or uh, there might be a clean water resource uh, for the community there there are there it's almost anything's possible but But what has has happened in the past is that without adequate regulation and without necessarily knowledge about the long-term consequences of mining, we have many thousands, perhaps millions, of abandoned mines around the world that range from very small to very large and they either present a safety problem where someone could fall down a shaft and and die uh, through to persistent and environmental pollution, whether it be airborne dust or acid and metalliferous drainage from the weathering of waste products that are exposed at the surface or or dams that could be unstable, containing tailings and so on. So it's these negative legacies that require remediation um, to clean up and remove their impacts. But in the process, uh, now with this call for critical raw materials, is really shifting our focus to well, what is in these materials that we can still find value in? And that's that's where we have this intersection between the circular economy and managing mining legacies.
0: Hmm. So is this then where the notion of residual value comes in? Uh, yes yes sorry i didn't explain that very well uh yeah the residual value is um when when
1: mining companies operate they'll have a cutoff grade and that grade says above you know half a percent of gold or whatever it is we keep and the rest will go as waste and it might be in the the waste rock before they decide what to crush and grind uh, to extract the valuable uh, material um or after when the tailings is produced, there's also more residual uh, value there. So for example, copper mines uh, may have cobalt uh, in, in their waste. And that cobalt is a value in, in the green energy transition for um, creating some of the materials that are necessary for alternative energy and so on.
0: So, So basically for mining companies, it's an economic decision because when, when we, you, we speak of grade, you're really speaking about the ratio of the, the matter that the company is mining to extract uh, relative to the rock and material surrounding it. That if that ratio is not favorable, then, it's easier from a cost perspective to just leave it there and follow areas where there's more mineral content. Is that what you mean?
1: Yes. So in the feasibility um, of understanding whether a mine is worth mining or not, an ore body is worth extracting. um, All of the economic aspects of um, removing overburden, for example, um, managing the waste to get at that ore, has to be all weighed up together to see if it is actually worthwhile and what the, the, the operation would make a profit. And that's based on a, on a cut off grade, which is obviously a critical decision in a fluctuating market where you can start with a particular cut off grade and a market price and a certain demand, and that demand could go up or down over time. And so, you know, mines are very complicated, um, you know, businesses because they have to manage in those fluctuating markets and fluctuating demands, as well as uh, shifting regulatory expectations and community uh, expectations as well. Um, And so over the life of a mine, there's this, um, well, what I call insidious risk, which is there's, and what I studied in my PhD, which is this slow growing risk um, that can be contained by the operation or allowed to worsen. And sometimes, and those risks are land disturbance and you know, water pollution and so on, these little uh, things that kind of build up over time unless the company recognises them and contains them and unless the regulations also support that. Uh, And and some operations do that very well and some don't. And and so if if they're in a trajectory where they're just getting a little bit worse and the water quality is getting worse and the land disturbance is getting worse and they're not rehabilitating it as they go along uh, or not setting aside money to do so, at some point in the future, then you can get to a point where uh, a small price change in the value of the commodity can make the whole operation uneconomic, and mines close suddenly or are abandoned. And and this is um, you know, one of the reasons how negative mining legacies left behind. Sometimes it's simply because the regulator hasn't required that uh, financial provision to make sure there's enough money at the end of the mine's life to clean it up, or or other decisions um, for example brown um, brown coal mines are closing all around the world because they're uh, large greenhouse gas um, polluters as an energy source but you've also got black coal mines um closing for thermal um thermal coal and in germany it's quite apparent um that they're they've got end dates for the various types of mine and um And so then they can sort of plan towards that end point. But sometimes the closure is is coming a little bit quicker than companies are ready for, and so they may not have everything in place, and so you can end up with these negative legacies that persist, and and there's ambiguity about who's responsible for it if the regulations haven't been clear.
0: Hmm. So so do we know of any critical minerals that are particularly recycled in significant quantities to date um so tungsten is an example
1: um, and there's a successful operation in queensland uh, and they have organization uh, companies elsewhere as well but they are mining waste to recover um, tungsten and also acquiring other abandoned mines to do the same thing so they are looking at waste because of its raw material value, instead of looking at it as a liability. And this is the exciting thing in this mining legacy space that in the past, governments look at, and, and industry look at mining legacies, as nothing but a burden on the industry. It impacts their reputation as a whole, and it, uh, it just was cost, cost money to clean up. But now if there is value in some of these wastes, even wastewater, um, filtering that water to get out um, metals, for example, that might otherwise be a contaminant like lead. Um, if you can use that in, in batteries or something, then it, bec- it has a value. Um, so finding value in waste is one way of cleaning up these legacies that maybe just sort of held in time, sort of suspended um, as a negative legacy can some come back to life and find value in it and clean it up properly to, to a modern
0: standard. Sure. Now, from what you're saying, the, the, the science seems to be clear. Uh, industrialists and government understand that wherein we used to look at uh this material as waste, we now know that it not only has uh economic value is but instead of it having a negative legacy by being efficient in how we recover the, the minerals, it can has a, have a positive legacy. Uh why, if we have this understanding, is the solution not as widely uh, implemented as it could? Why are we still baddened with mining legacies throughout the world? So um,
1: often the responsibility is not clear. Uh, who is actually responsible for these legacies? You could argue it's the industry, but you could equally argue it's government regulation. Um but it it almost falls into a crack in between. And so it's not until there's some value in one of those sites that you begin to see some sort of negotiation about who's responsible for which part of the liability and who might uh, be be responsible for the value. So you know, state governments in Australia are, Responsible for using our mineral resources to help fund the building of roads and hospitals and provide public services. So if we can, if if governments can find value in these resources through um, mining companies coming in to mine them and taking royalties from them and uh, leaving it in a, um, a safe, stable, sustainable condition then that value is very important uh, for society. Um, But, but yeah, the biggest problem is responsibility because we've we've had workshops. We had one in uh, Toronto, Canada, run by the International um, Union for Conservation of Nature and the ICMM, which is the International Council for Mining and Metals. And they hosted this forum and brought together uh, abandoned mine Um, mining legacy managers from all around the world and it was a very valuable forum and it mapped out an agenda for how to build you know global networks to help support um, those professionals in often remote areas with very few resources to try and clean up these sites but um, it's a classic example of where there's been no um, formal follow-up no formal leadership on this so Mm. it's really just left You know, to individual states and their responsibilities. Even in Australia, we don't have any national coordination because it's up to the states, the individual jurisdictions, to manage mining and regulate mining. So the mining legacies are therefore the responsibility of the states. But in countries like Canada, um, even though it's the same model where the provinces are responsible, there is a national orphan and abandoned mine initiative. And that initiative brings together all of those. um, experts um, in policy and uh, the technical aspects. And they share knowledge, they look at the laws, are they adequate? And they they also account for the liabilities. So there's financial accounting. Once you financially add up the liability, then there is a very strong impetus to manage these sites effectively and bring that liability down. So Canada really leads the way there in its accountability. Um, And it can then engage other stakeholders in the process like um, First Nations people and so on to to help involve the local community in a way that means that the remediation that's carried out will benefit the community. What is it that they need? Is it clean water? Is it about a fishing place? Is it about accessing food um, in a particular area, native food? And and it sort of uh, takes rather a, a whole country perspective down to the provincial level and then a local level. And it's that aspect that we've tried to capture in a international standard that we've just developed to provide a model for how to manage these legacies. We're not saying this this organisation or that is responsible. Whoever is responsible, this is how you can move forward with these challenging sites. Hmm.
0: I'm interested in uh, the idea of a model because On listening to you, I'm struck by two things, that in countries where like, say, uh, Canada, the United States, Argentina, and uh, uh, et cetera, where you have a federated system where the states legislate uh, at state level. In addressing these emerging challenges of how to deal with mining legacies, you could have a kind of uh, uh, lack of coherence. But I'm also mindful that even if you took that to a higher level and thought globally, because we traded globally and, and we can't clean the environment in isolation of the, the individual countries. And so I wanted to ask you, when you think about it in your modeling, where is the entry point in creating this harmony? Is it at national or is it at international level? How do we get to a place where there is consensus that we must do better with uh, mining legacy, and that the mining legacies must be dealt with as part of the secular economy to save the environment.
1: Mm, that's such a good question. I, I think it's it's at a, at all levels. So, what's missing is that global leadership. Are there are places where it's missing. And where the activity might be happening at a state level it might be a little bit stop and start like they might have a team of people come in and work really actively for five years and then a key person leaves and it sort of programs collapse uh, i saw that a lot in australia and we still have a situation where some states have a good f- funding model to sustain those programs <clears throat> while others don't and so you have this patchwork quilt um at the state level but then at a local level local governments often in australia left out of the mining approval process they, they obviously can have a say in the process but they don't control anything to a large extent so they often don't have much influence at a local level they can lobby they can talk to the media they can raise awareness and that does get a response, but we don't want everything to be reactive. You know, just waiting for something to happen, waiting for a bad story or a big storm that brings polluted water down a river system, and you know, wipes out a, a crop or um, something. So we, we want to move away from being just reactive to to uh, pollution problems and or collapsed tailings dams or whatever um, to that proactive stage and. I think one of the things I found about people who work on Mining Legacies are quite passionate about what they do and they love what they do, but they're often doing it on very little funding and very poor resourcing. But there are these little highlights in Canada and um, countries like that. Even Peru, at at a conference I was at last month in uh, Germany, in Dresden, um, I had gone with a university colleague from University of Queensland across to Peru to assess these sites to help um, these abandoned mines in the catchment of Lake Titicaca. And we were assessing these sites to help them accelerate um, remediation work. In that presentation, the Peruvian presenter showed that site remediated. They'd already done that work. And I was so kind of excited to see that because more often than not um, I've been involved in assessing sites that are still sitting there waiting for some attention. Uh, The Mount Morgan site that I talk about, we did a comprehensive rehab plan, but now there is a company um, starting up a new mining operation. So that's very rewarding. It might be 20 years later, but it's still exciting. So it's a slow process. It requires persistence and patience, but it also requires this multi-level input. And and we also need to be able to build capacity of communities so they know how to approach uh, governments, how to get action on certain aspects so um, in the past I've applied for funding on community capacity building I wasn't successful on that front but it's like I've been trying to look at all of the cogs in a wheel and and how can we mobilize at a number of levels um, international support would help a lot in Australia a national initiative is needed we don't have that and we have some um, oh just one other example from Germany where Vismut is the company that's been remediating old uh, uranium mines and they have built these national uh, international cooperation with other countries and they had various South American companies, uh, countries present for that forum. And you could see that where this international collaboration had a point of contact, that they were going ahead, they were making progress and uh, they're very proud of that progress. But in a country like Australia, where it's fragmented by the states and we don't have a single point of contact, um, you can see us lagging behind. And that was really stark uh, and interesting for me to see. Hmm.
0: So earlier on, you 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 spoke about one of the reasons why um, we have uh, legacies on mining sites uh, because of uh, the economics of uh, a particular uh, deposit. And I I wanted to ask you, because it reminded me that everything comes with a cost. Has there been any studies to show uh, what the potential additional or uh, whether or not it's more costly for us to recycle uh, or to reclaim this otherwise potentially economically marginal deposits, and therefore pass that cost to the consumer, have we looked at the economics and therefore the sustainability of that process relative to the linear economy as we know it now?
1: I I suspect there are people studying it, but it's not something that that I'm uh, familiar with. What what is actually happening is that there are materials, raw materials that we're needing, that uh, are suddenly we're suddenly realizing might be in short supply, Um, and and that's shifting our attention to certain wastes, to certain mind types, um, and it, it shifts its value so. Whereas um, something that was a waste you know was below a cutoff grade and wasn't economic now it's becoming so this is the this is the shift that I see around the circular economy that certain materials um, like raw rare earth that may may have gone out in the tailings uh, are now interesting to recover um, and the dynamics globally between what um, you know what China's doing what the rest of the world is doing there is a lot of uh, sort of shoring up of relationships between countries going on at the moment just reading linkedin for example just seeing um people meeting in different countries to talk about supply you know whether it's japan or europe or um, usa between those that can supply it and those that need it Um, there's a lot of talk about you know the global south providing the critical raw materials for the global north because of that concentration of population and, and I think there is an awareness that there could be an exacerbation of the imbalance in terms of where the environmental harms take place and where the environmental benefits might be, um, you know, harm being in the south and benefits in the north. But at the same time, in the global south, of course, we're also transitioning to green energy. So it's, uh, it's not that, not that clear cut. Absolutely.
0: Uh, I, I, we talked about policy and the 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 fact that something has fallen between the cracks between uh, governments and industry in terms of who who takes the lead. Uh, on thinking about the need to, you know, get the process of working on these legacies as a matter of policy and potentially law, uh is 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 could incentives be what we need should government be thinking of changing mining laws in in a way that makes leaving these tailings behind uh an economic and mining them and maximizing recoveries more economic? can we incentivize uh mining companies oh um definitely
1: uh even even the term waste is problematic. And um, even when uh, where I am in Finland, I talked to um, the circular economy people at this university, Uvaskola, they didn't even like the word waste. Um, everything has got raw material value uh, in their minds. And so simply re- when regulations are changed uh, from calling something a waste to having residual value, it seems like a small act, but in doing so, it opens up all sorts of opportunities. And this is really the shift from a linear economy to a circular economy in, in one very small step. But it doesn't immediately change everything. It just opens up a new view of the world. and But everyone sort of has to shift that view to seeing everything as having value instead of um, being waste and piling it up somewhere. I mean, the, the mere fact that in Finland in 2016, they stopped building landfill for municipal waste and they find value in every piece of waste is significant in itself. Like in Australia, we still build landfills. It's becoming increasingly difficult and there is a focus on circular economy for municipal waste. But it's not something that I'm an expert in. It's just to find that they've already made that progress. It shifts their whole view of everything from you know mining waste as well towards how do we find value in this material and the other piece of legislation is around allowing more than one operator on a site so typically mining leases are you know owned by and managed by one mining company but if you want to find value in waste you might have to have um, several operators there you if you can imagine i see it's like piggybacking onto an operation where there's already a tailings dam and there's waste dumps but imagine if there's uh, another company operating and reprocessing tailings and going through to find uh, value in tailings and and there's another small operation crushing and grinding some of the waste rock because of something else that's in there Um, the mining tenure the lease arrangements, the legal arrangements, need to shift and change, and that's something that is changing in Queensland. For example, under their critical mineral strategy, they'll be bringing in new legislation, so that that recognises that the old model of one company, one mining lease, is perhaps becoming a thing of the past. If we're going to truly find value um, in the in waste materials, there's also you know road-based construction materials, sands, and other. Materials and some companies have been managing these for some time. If you look at the um, the brown coal mines of western parts of Germany, where they had sand and gravel and other sorts of overburden, they had a market for those materials. So they're quite benign. It's not um, extracting minerals from them, but it's their physical properties. Those materials are needed for construction, so they were already they've already been doing that for decades. Um, but finding critical raw material value is, is a, a whole shift in focus that is kind of adding value and ch- changing the way we view mining waste.
0: Yeah. so, so in other words, it's not just uh, what we do with waste, uh, it's whether we deem it waste in the first instance. Yes, that's but it. We have, that's it. We, we have to change it, our whole thinking. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so what we are doing is, is taking the view of one miner who has determined they want to mine gold and nothing else. And and they are the ones that are then determined. But if we said, okay, you don't want it, but what else is there and then license somebody else, then we would end up with much less of this uh, material. Well, uh, Corinne, that was all we had time for. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive podcast. Well, thank you, Sheila, for an
1: interesting conversation.